Uh, good morning to you, C4 Church. Really glad that you're here this morning. Want to say hello to you who are watching us on C4 Online. Uh, glad you're joining us uh, here uh, today. Uh, well, winter's back, isn't it, everyone? Oh, wow. Yeah, all the people who are pro-winter are excited. I, I had the great privilege. I was preaching up at a Youth for Christ retreat in, near Minden. It was minus 35. Uh, all the Western people online are like, please sit down, Ontario. You're so weak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it, was, it was cold. But I want to announce this morning that uh, as Jeff Smythe and I went up, I did stop when it was minus 29, and I got Kortha ice cream. I got my tiger tail. I just want to say that. So, yeah, very important, very important. Okay, now to the real stuff. Welcome again to our year-long series out of the book of John. If you've got a Bible virtually or physically today, please turn uh, to the book of John. We're going to be again in chapter 6. Again, if you've got an iPad or any type of tablet or phone, we've got Wi-Fi in here. We'd encourage you to use that. And again, if you're on Twitter, the Twitter uh, hashtag is C4Believe as I'm speaking this morning. So just want to give that to you. I don't know if you were with us last week, virtually or physically, but I want to re-remind you where we began last week. Last week, we started with food. Do you remember? And we talked about it as a culture, how we love food, how we're surrounded by food, how we've made food and art, how we have networks dedicated to food, and we talk candidly, without food you die, and if you eat too much food, well, you're in trouble, and, and, and on and on. And then, remember, I asked you what your favorite topping of pizza was, and people got very intense, and fights broke out, ushers got involved. I, very serious people, very opinionated about food. But... Uh, interestingly, Jesus isn't done with the theme of food. And he's going to go in another direction as we dive back into the scriptures. You know, philosophers say you are what you think. I retweeted this week uh, someone who said you are what you Google. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Uh, but I think doctors and dietitians would tell us we are what we eat. What you put into your body is absorbed into you. What you eat and what you continue to eat over time, good, bad, ugly, or in between, well, it becomes part of you. That's why people are healthy or unhealthy. That's why there's a million conversations that take place around the idea of dietary absorption. Now, we don't think very much about it until we're in trouble, but Jesus chooses that very image to talk about himself. What we're about to read this morning actually is some of the most offensive and hard-to-understand teaching in all of the Gospels about Jesus. And Jesus chooses to use the idea of eating and absorption to talk about him, himself. He's been using the image, calling himself, remember, the bread of life. Two weeks ago when we were gathering, we, we started pouring over the scriptures and diving into that place where Jesus feeds the 5,000, but we really found that it wasn't five. That was just the men. There was women and children and friends. There was over 10,000 people, and he did it with two sardines and five large crackers. And last week, he keeps telling this same crowd that keeps showing up in his life that that sign, the feeding of over 10,000 people by those little loaves of bread, was actually not about getting them food. It wasn't just to feed them. It was to point all of them to him. Why? Because he is the bread of life. Now, the closer you get to Jesus, just like this crowd, the more confused, the more angry or shocked we get. Jesus keeps telling this crowd that they must trust in him and they may not ever trust in what they do or their pedigree or their background or their ethnicity or their religious backing. Jesus keeps saying to the crowd, you need to encounter me because you don't bring anything to the table. 
See, the crowd asks one of the most important questions, which is the question that human history has wrestled with within the religious realm. And it is this, what must I do to please God? What do I need to bring to the table? How much credit do I need in God's bank so he likes me? The crowd asks him this, remember two weeks ago, after he feeds them. And this is what he says in John 6, 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Period. Now here's the question. Why must the world, why must that crowd, why must this crowd trust in, have faith in, believe in, be changed by Jesus? Why is believing on Jesus the fullest and the only way to God? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. See, there has never, ever been someone like Jesus, and there's never, ever going to be someone in the future who is like Jesus. Jesus is above every single human being that has ever been born. Why? Because Jesus isn't like the rest of the kids, because he's God in flesh. He comes to this crowd and has this conversation, and he starts using this, this image of bread. And he says in John 6.35, Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never go thirsty. He keeps saying to the crowd, don't you understand? It's me. I actually am the food. I am the substance. I am the nourishment for body and soul. (laughs) It's no mistake, like I preached last week, that I was born in Bethlehem, he says, because Bethlehem means what? It means house of bread. Even the place I was born is preparing the world for who I am and why I've come. You see, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. Just give me a moment as I re-preach some stuff from last week. There are seven statements. Jesus says, I am the light. Not one light, not one among many. I am the exclusive light. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. Now, we miss this in English, but you don't miss it in Greek. See, what Jesus is doing here is profound. He is saying, I am the bread of life. I am is the exact name of God when Moses went before the burning bush and God encountered him. He takes his shoes off and says, this is holy ground. Moses, I have called you. I have heard the cry of my people who are in slavery. And Moses says, I will go, sort of after a serious dialogue, as we know, and then says, who is sending me? And God says, my name is I am that I am. This is the exact Greek phrase you find in the Old Testament in the Greek version. Jesus is declaring that he is the same God that met with Moses. And because he is God, he's bread. Because he is God, he's the door. Because he is God, he is life and resurrection. See, if you're not God and you claim these things, you're the devil, you're a lunatic, you're a liar. But if you are God, you have every right to say these things. So Jesus shows up and he says to the crowd, I am the bread of life. The crowd keeps debating with him. Do you remember? And they start bringing up Moses. We'll get there in a minute. And they start talking about manna. See, Jesus intentionally chooses to use the idea of bread because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Israel has saved, is saved out of Egypt. 1.1 million people are taken out of slavery. They cross through the Red Sea. They're now in the middle of the desert. They have no food, no water. Have you ever thought through the latrine issues with 1.1 million people? Anyone? Exodus is not so pretty. The people are saying, well, have you brought us out here to die? 
Moses, let's go back to Egypt. Moses goes before God and says the people are starving. And God suddenly provides this manna. It's bread from heaven. It appears every day like frost on the ground. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand? Even manna is a foreshadow of me. I am from heaven like manna is from heaven. Manna looked like frost, white as snow. Don't you understand? I am white as snow because I am without sin. And here's the great thing. You either choose to pick me up or you don't. The crowd understood the power of what he was saying. See, there's no room for doubt with Jesus. By word, by deed, by sign, Jesus is clearly coming. Jesus is clearly saying, you are inviting to come to me, to believe on me, to be freed by me, to be transformed by me. But like we heard last week when I was preaching, look at verse 36. But he knows the heart of the crowd. But as I have told you, you have seen me and you do not believe me. You've seen me. You're the same crowd that was there when I just fed 10,000 people with five premium plus crackers. Are you joking me? You're the same crowd that is following me because I heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead. You've heard my teaching. You're the crowd that keeps coming to me and saying, we have never, ever heard someone articulate God so well. We've never heard someone with such authority and power speak the scriptures. We have never seen a teacher like you. There is no one like you. And yet, you don't believe. Some will, but most won't. Remember where we were last week, verse 37? Jesus clarifies why unbelief exists in the large crowd. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he said. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will, my will, but to do the will of the one who has sent me. See, like I preached last week, never forget, though we are Westerners and though we are empowered and though we are all about our rights and though we are educated, let me tell you something. Salvation is by God, from God, through God, and all was done through him alone. We never come to Jesus because we think it's a good idea. Are you joking me? Jesus is not a good idea for sinful people. The closer that Jesus gets to us, the more we realize our need, our pride, our true condition that we're spiritually dead. See, it is a sovereign grace of God. That is how we come to believe. We can't talk ourselves into faith. It's like a dead person saying, but I am determined to get out of the casket and come to life. No. If you're dead, you're dead. We in this church, like I said last week, and many other good churches use the language like I I came to Jesus, or I chose Jesus, or I invited Jesus to come in my heart, or we use with our kids, "I, I want Jesus to be my forever friend. I came just as I am with only one plea. We ask people, do you want to be saved? Is that wrong? No. It's fantastic. It's needed. The essence of our movement is about people choosing Jesus. But we need to understand that behind the choice, God has already shown up and risen us from death to life. He's already giving us the ability to see Jesus. Blind people and dead people don't choose Jesus spiritually. But when God shows up and he begins to prepare the way, you will choose him. Why? Whoever the Father gives to the Son, he will never drive away. He says in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none. I love this. I shall lose nobody that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes on him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. When we stop for a moment in this church, you online, When we stop and really hear not only the teachings and the claims, but the proximity of Jesus, 
What he's just declared is either the most offensive, most damning words, or the most powerful and encouraging words, depending on what you do with Jesus. For those that embrace Jesus, he has just said, said amazing things. Did you just hear what God has sung over your life, church? You have eternal life. Death is not the end. There is purpose in this life. Jesus just said to us, he'll never leave us. He'll never drive us away. We'll never go hungry or thirsty because he's now begun to deal with the deepest need in us that is to know God and enjoy him forever. These are the grand promises he says over every single Christian. Good amen moment. Awesome. Clapping even better. This is us. This is why we live as Christians. Jesus is never going to drive us away. Ever. Why? Because the Father called us and he died for us and the Spirit infills us and he sealed us until the day of resurrection. Yet on the other hand, Jesus knows that many, if not most, will not see the good news as good news at all, but actually a threat. Now why is it a threat? Well, here it is. Because it, threat, it is a threat to what they trust in. Jesus is deeply and dangerously offensive to the average person because he comes and says, you've trusted your life in you or your good works or your intellect or science or technology or human progress or philosophy or religious studies or you fill in the blank or you're good or you're cut. And Jesus comes and says, on this level, it doesn't matter. See, the same crowd, catch this, that wanted to make him king 24 hours earlier, the same, the same group that saw him do the most miraculous act that has been recorded in 400 years since the time of Malachi, now they begin to waver when they really hear what Jesus is saying. This is where we stopped last week, and we'll pick up in verse 41. At this time, the crowd, the Jews, began to grumble about Jesus because he said to them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's amazing, you know, the, the, the ancestors of the Jews, these very people, they grumbled before God when, when Moses was trying to help them out. See, God moved and saved them and provided, but he didn't do it the way they liked or, or when or why or, or how it was supposed to happen according to them. And once again, they're not pleased by what they're hearing. They start getting angry. They complain. They protest. They gripe. Actually, here's the best word. They object to Jesus. See, they want to have Jesus on their own terms, not on his terms. So this is their problem. Everyone ready? It's some of your problem. You came down from heaven? Okay, really. You're claiming to be better than all of us? You're claiming to know God more than us? Hold on. You're claiming you're actually really from heaven? Like you're equal with God? Okay, just hold on again. Jesus, you need to sit down and we need to school you. We know you're special because you can do weird things. But this is going to your head. You are not what you're claiming. And then verse 42 comes on the page. And let me tell you, many of us have never read this, but this is the most powerful thing you're going to hear about Jesus in this crowd. And then they said to him, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we actually know? How can he say he's come down from heaven? We know you, Jesus. We've been to parties with you. We were at weddings with you. We know your mom and dad, Joseph and Mary. We, we know what you're saying is false. You're just one of us. We've lived with you for years. Yeah, you're different and differently special because you do the miracle thing. But let me tell you, you start claiming that you're from heaven, you are becoming a cult leader. I'm, Joseph, where are you? Deal with your son. 
See, that's the heart of this. We grew up with you. And you think you're all that because of what? Jesus responds very tactfully. Stop it. Hmm. Stop grumbling among yourself. Jesus speaks with authority. And then very interestingly, he chooses to repeat the very same things he said to the crowd, but he spells them out in more detail because he is determined. He is determined for one thing. He wants real followers. He doesn't give a rip about a crowd. Verse 44, no one, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Yes, you know my mom and dad. Yeah, we grew up. Yeah, we hung out. But that's not the whole story. See, you weren't there at Christmas when Gabriel showed up. See, you can't, you can't come to me as a crowd because you're always looking and missing it because I'm sorry to say you're blind. Yes, I'm the guy you played soccer with. Yes, I'm the same guy we swam on those hot summer days. But before all of that was, I've already told you, I am. It is written in the prophets, verse 45, they will be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Jesus reaches back 740 years and quotes out of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 54, 13, and says, by the way, that was about me. God will teach his people himself. And he says to this whole crowd, friends of his, acquaintances of his, he says to his old friends, if you don't accept me, listen closely, if you don't accept me and what I teach and what I claim about myself, you have never known God and you're not hearing from God and you've never been taught by God. And just in case anyone today is missing what I'm really offering and what I'm claiming, let me put it in the most emphatic of terms so it is, it is just abundantly clear. Verse 46, no one, not some, no one has ever seen the Father except the one who comes down from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I share an intimate relationship with God the Father that no one else except me has because I'm really from heaven. Remember John, the very first two verses in his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. See, this is now Jesus starting to spell out the reality of who he really is that we caught a first glimpse of at the beginning. He says, since I have come from the Father, and I'm equal with the Father because I share his essence, I can bring eternal life. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a socialite. I'm not just here for a religious revolution. See, I am the God you've worshipped in the temple. I'm the God you've met in the tabernacle. I'm the same God that walked with Moses. I am the God that called Abraham. Oh, by the way, I'm the God that walked with Adam and Eve. I am. So let me tell you again, my friends, he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And your forefathers, well, they ate men in the desert and they died. What happened under Moses, he says, is amazing, but it did not last. Do you remember last week, the crowd got in Jesus' face and they, da they dared him, basically, in verse 30? What miraculous sign, just look up, will you, will you give us so, so we'll believe in you? What will you do? And then they said, we'll see our forefathers ate man in the desert. And they said, well, you know, we're really glad that you fed 10,000 people yesterday. Very impressive. But we really don't think you're up to snuff yet. See, you've got to at least be as good as Moses. So here's our challenge to you, Jesus. Bring it. Prove it. I'm just waiting. Just, just prove it a little bit more. See, I remind you, Jesus, that, oh, Moses fed Israel 1.1 million people for, mm, I don't know, 40 years, six days a week with manna. You did one meal. You're not that big. Bring it. 
Jesus responds to them then and responds to them again now in verse 50. He says, here is bread from heaven that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread, and here's when it gets interesting, is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jesus, by the way, is not some young pastor learning how to preach and making a terrible mistake at this moment. He's not some novice communicator overusing an idea or image and getting lost in it and never getting to the point. Jesus is pushing this crowd with this grand truth and he's using more and more explicit language to push them beyond their first reaction because their first reaction has led them nowhere. He wants to do something that most of us sitting in this room and online would never expect God to do. He wants to intentionally divide the crowd, allowing those being drawn to come closer to him and the many, many more to leave, to reject, and to run from him and never come back. Jesus has come to demand decision, and the decision determines eternity in the now and eternity forever. Jesus says these words to a Jewish crowd. You must ingest me. You must eat me. You must take me in, and then and only then will you live. By the way, for us who've done church for a long time, immediately we start thinking about communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. That's not what this is about. The word flesh here is never used by Paul or the other gospel writers at all. This is not a reference to communion. This is Jesus saying, you need to ingest me so I live inside of you and I begin to change who you are from the inside out. Like food is taken in and your body absorbs it. So that is what I'm inviting you to do with me. Hmm. The Jews begin to argue among themselves. How, how can this man, they say, give us his flesh to eat? The crowd turns on each other like a domestic dispute they misunderstand Jesus. It gets quite intense, somewhat violent and arguing. They begin to fight with one another. Are we really supposed to eat his flesh? And then he says, drink his blood. Is this, is this some bizarre cult thing? Is he actually inviting us into some form of cannibalism? Now see, if we were Jesus's PR agent in Hollywood, we'd be freaking out. We'd be like, Jesus, you need to change the statement. Uh, We need to backtrack. If we were in politics, the press secretary would be coming out and saying, well, that's not really what he meant. He was actually meaning this. Let me clarify. This is a PR nightmare. We'd want to soften the statement. Change the statement. Jesus, use another image. This is just too, this is too weird. But Jesus has no time for this. Jesus is being so direct and so direct, he, he wants to kill something. See, his intention is to kill any notion of himself or God that is false. Why? Because idols don't bring life. One wrote, and I read it this week, like the crowd, even as Christians, I'll add that in, we often are offended by Jesus' fleshly offer to us. We would rather as human beings have a vague used presence or, 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 or some impersonal abstract deity, not a particular man who's come from heaven to live among us in the flesh for a very specific time and place. Well, why? See, see, when God takes on flesh, he just gets too close. He gets too near to us, and suddenly our sins are unmasked. We're caught swearing and telling lies and succumbing to our lust and murdering one another. And, and so what do we do? We struggle to make the flesh of the Son of Man unreal, to keep God incarnate out of our world. And yet John will say later, it is that ancient lie that actually comes from the spirit of Antichrist itself. Jesus, at that moment, speaking to this crowd, stops. I wonder if he stood. 
And then he says it. Knowing full well that almost everything that it appears that he's been working for is about to be lost. This is like he's going to the stock market and he knows he's going to lose. And Jesus says to them in verse 53, I tell you the truth, the old King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus will not take back any of what he said at all. He says, you must accept me, ingest me, I must be within you. Now, amazingly, eat and drink is a one-time action. It doesn't mean time and time again. It's written as a once-for-all statement, so you must accept me. And of course, Jesus is pointing to his coming work on the cross, his shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body. And of course, we know it is that coming selfless act where Jesus will conquer sin and death and Satan, and so we can actually eat the bread of life and come home. It's what John would later write in another letter where he'd say, and this is how God shows his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might have life through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, that call that Jesus gave that crowd is to truly have Jesus in your life, to be changed by him, to ingest him. It's not literally to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is using such a graphic image to show them, you cannot know me on the outside. I must live and be absorbed on the inside. I love what James Boyce wrote when he said, is Jesus as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Christian, this is for us. Is he as much a part of you as what you eat day to day? Don't think me blasphemous, he writes, when I say he needs to become as real to you and as useful to you as hamburger and fries. But he does. I say this, although he's obviously more real and unusual than these, but the unfortunate thing, even for many of us in the church, is this. He is much less than us, less in us, than hamburgers or fries are in our life. If Jesus is not substantially real and involved in our life, we have a deep problem on our hands. Again, Jesus is intentionally setting up the crowd for the great divide, pointing to those that have taken him in and pointing to those that know about him and have hung around him and are excited by him, but they don't really want him. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they have eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I will remain in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers, here's where he ties it all up, your forefathers ate manna and they died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this in the synagogue in Capernaum. I'm the only way. I'm the only thing that will last. You have to accept me, accept my teachings, accept my claims of being from heaven. You have to come and accept my work on the cross. And then, and only then will you live. Only then will you get internal life and eternal life. But like we heard last week, and again today, the problem is an intellectual. They actually move from not understanding to understanding. They begin to see what Jesus is really getting at. They see his call. They start seeing his commands. They see the cost. Everything is now becoming unbelievably clear. And Jesus keeps driving home this heavier, heavier image. And the stronger and stranger it gets, the more powerful things happen. I want to remind all of us here this morning 
that Jesus at this moment is in the height of his ministry. I made the joke the last two weeks about Justin Bieber's crowds being about the same as Jesus's. It's true. Like this guy has tens of thousands of followers. This guy is born in the middle of nowhere. He bursts on the scenes. Thousands are following him. Some are deeply committed. Some are on the fringe. Some in the middle. Degrees of devotion are all over the place. But this crowd is massive. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people now at least starting to hear about the name of Jesus. And Jesus, interestingly, comes in the middle of what we in the West would call success. And he says, I'm not interested in crowds. I need disciples. See, he knows many will follow Jesus for a million reasons, but none of them to meet him. They want a temporal and a fickle experience. This is good news falling on dry ground, rough and hard. Uh, They're saying, yes, yes, I'll follow Jesus, but I don't want any of the discomfort called discipleship. They want Jesus to be their Jesus, how they like him, when they want him. They want him easy bake Jesus, basically. Jesus says, you can't put words in my mouth. You can't reshape me to suit your ideas or wants, politically, religiously, or otherwise. Don't you know who I am? I am the Savior and Lord. I am. I am. Me, never you. Verse 60. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can listen to this? Who can be expected to hear this, let alone actually embrace it? See, hard actually means something more. It is offensive. This is intolerant. Does this sound familiar? This is illogical. This is irrational. How can you say this? Because the implications are the rest of us are all wrong. How, How can you say this? See, they've moved from not understanding to understanding, and now they're wondering if they ingest this meal, if they're going to throw it back up. The disciples say this is so difficult. And by the way, not the 12. We're talking about the crowd right now. They're all called disciples. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, do I offend you? Does this offend you? Uh, What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he's come from before? You think this is difficult. He said, well, what happens when you see me go back up to heaven? Then will you believe? I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, if my early teachings are shutting you down, you will not be able to handle what I'm about to bring to the table. Jesus keeps pounding. Verse 63, the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. He says to the crowd in the most direct of ways, humble and deeply loving and yet giving truth. He says you are blind because you keep trying to understand what I teach you by your own abilities. Have I not taught you? It is the father who calls you and I am God in flesh. So now you know who God is fully and clearly. And oh, by the way, the only way you get life is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows you to see and understand and accept me and I bring you back to the Father. In other words, crowd, my dear friends who I've grown up with, if you reject me, if you do not accept me, then you have never known the God of Israel. You do not know the Father and the Spirit of God has not given you life. How not to win friends and influence people. There are some of you who do not believe For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did believe in those who would betray. He went on to say, this is what I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And here's verse 66. From this time, not some, not a few, many people, many of his disciples turned back and they no 
longer followed him. That was it. Despite all that Jesus offered, salvation, life, eternal life, forgiveness, the promise we would never be alone, dealing with the deepest needs we have, we'd never be forsaken, he'd never push us away. Despite the life-given person of Jesus and the freedom of his teachings that the burden of religion did not need to yoke anyone any longer, most people turned around and said, no, this is not good news. And what a, It must have been one of those moments for the twelve heartbreaking, dream-wrecking, a shock to the normal. It threatened all that had been and could have been. I mean, I I, want to remind you again, 24 hours earlier, the crowds saw Jesus feed over 10,000. They want to make him king. And then the disciples actually are saved physically by Jesus in the middle of the storm as he walks on water. And they wake up the next day and the crowds come in probably even larger numbers. And now Jesus drives away half of the crowd or more. So much seems to be lost. And then Jesus, he's not done. He turns to the ones, you know, the the inner, inner circle, the 12. And this is what he says to them. Do you want to leave too? Do you? You know what I've been saying. You know what I've been teaching. You know what I claim about myself. You can leave, by the way, if the cost is too high, Philip. If my claims are too lofty, Peter, you can go also. If you can't follow my path, then then there's no middle ground, guys. There's no fence. What do you do with me? Simon Peter, of course, answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You do have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? I love Peter. He says, where am I supposed to go? I mean, the other options are fine. I mean, I've looked around, and we've looked around, and there are other good rabbis, and you know what? It just, you're different because we really actually think you are who you are. It's like us as Christians looking around and going, well, I could leave the faith. I'd do fine. I could go on and become an agnostic or atheist. I could go and live a very good or bad lifestyle and have some fun in the middle, but every time I go to leave, I keep stopping because I keep going, but Jesus... I know who you really are, and I can't deny it. And at the end of the day, this is so temporal. And you, man, you satisfy, you bring life. It's tough sometimes, but I'm in. Right when Peter makes this profound confession, Jesus still doesn't end. He says, yet one of you is a devil. Wow, not a good designation. He meant Judas, Judas, the sign of Simeon, uh, Simon the Iscariot, who... One of the twelve, though one of the twelve would later betray him. Chuck Swindoll wrote, not every pretend believer looks like a Judas. Many well-meaning churchgoers are Judas and they don't know it. They behave like their Christian peers, but they're motivated for a number of reasons, none of them which are authentic faith. Sadly, one day, many people who call themselves Christian will stand before Jesus himself and they will hear rebuke instead of welcome because they will be expecting to hear reward for their good service and they had forgotten or believed the lie it was about them and not about the work of Jesus. Jesus comes and he does the reverse of what we would expect. In the middle of his ministry, at the height of his ministry, he makes sure that everyone is clear about who he is and what he's about. Because unlike most of us in this room that view success in different ways, he viewed it through disciples. Now the good news about this passage, because I know this is an intense passage and you all look very down right now, is this. 
The good news is actually given here. This is one of the most articulate statements of the gospel. This is good news. Jesus, who's equal with the Father, has really come down from heaven. And if you truly and fully accept him and his gift of life, there's salvation. To eat and drink Jesus means to voluntarily assimilate Jesus into your life. And if you are beginning to feel the call of God on your life, if you're beginning to go, I didn't used to believe he was the Son of God, and now for some reason I do. Yes, I want to follow him. Know that God is drawing you to himself. See, this is a call to move from knowing about Jesus to actually knowing Jesus, to move from the outside to the inside. What does Jesus say? He gives the grand answer. What is the gospel? To believe on Jesus, the one he has sent. If you are a Christian here this morning, and I want to say this very clearly, we need to be clear about the gospel we're handing out. And if you are seeking here this morning, let me give you the gospel. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, you are saying that you accept and only accept Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You believe that he's the bread of life, and you believe he really came from heaven. You're saying, I believe in Jesus. I know who you are, and I'm going to meet you or I have met you, and I trust in you. I place my confidence in you, and I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I believed for a long time I was good enough, or I believed for a long time you never wanted to know me. I admit that I've said to you, God, time and time again, prove it, and maybe I'll believe. But now I know how desperately I need you. I need bread that will last. I believe your Lord and God and Savior. I welcome your work of forgiveness. I welcome you to run my life. I want eternal life. I want to be held by you. I don't want to fear death any longer. I want to never be driven away. I trust in Jesus, the bread of life. That is the gospel we hold out to our world. Nothing more and nothing less. And if you've never accepted Jesus, in a moment I will give you opportunity to genuinely encounter him. But for the rest of us, let me be unbelievably clear. Everyone look up. Youth group moment. Everyone look at me. We don't offer C4 to the world. We don't offer our programs to the world. We don't offer ourselves to the world. We offer the gospel of Jesus and Jesus himself. Let us never confuse the two. We should not have any fear in our world because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when the gospel gets planted in someone, profound life change takes place. Have courage because our gospel is still strong, still real, still authentic because Jesus has not changed. This is our truth as Christians. A few other things. I want to say this and then I'm done. How does this help us on Monday morning? How does this help us achieve the unique vision of this church? Well, other than being unbelievably clear about the gospel we've been given, sometimes we as Christians, or like all people, need to have our expectations changed up front. Because if our expectations are wrong, we will give up thinking we are failing actually when we're not, because our expectations were wrong. So let me just say this this morning. We are determined, as one church out of many in this area, to see Durham be transformed by Jesus. Do you agree? Yes. As every good local church around the world would say in their own area, we believe we have been sovereignly, providentially planted in this place for this time to be the witness of Jesus in this area. This is our belief. The gospel that we hold out is that Jesus is the only way because of who he is and what he's done. But here's the reality check we all need to understand right now. Most people 
are openly going to defect away from Jesus. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to work hard and pray hard and preach like it's up to us, even though we know it's not. Like, I'm not, but listen, if we're kind and loving and compassionate, and, and by the way, not only do we live a Christian life, but we also tell people about Jesus. I'm so glad many people want to live a better Christian life, but you still need to communicate the gospel. Your life alone is not enough. Side note, we have to live a Christian life and give the gospel. But as we're doing that, hopefully never arrogantly, being humble, not being political, and offering life to people, the majority of our family and friends will say no. When that happens to you, if you've done it in right motive, with good character, let me tell you, don't be discouraged. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. So many of us think that we're failing because we don't, you know, Billy Graham isn't beside us and two... 1.1 million people didn't walk forward. Breathe. Open defection is what happens. Why? Because the world system and the kingdom of darkness and the human heart hate Jesus because he threatens everything. So don't be discouraged when your whole workplace doesn't come to Jesus. Your responsibility, like John the Baptist, is to sow the seed and say, there is a person you need to meet. Let me tell you about him. He's right over here. And when that's done, it's over. You live your life as a follower of Christ. If we put the burden on our shoulders for the work of God, we will always, always turn on ourselves and collapse. Many will walk away from Jesus because his teaching, who can accept it? Others among us are Judas. Some will join us and they will look like Christians and either they are deceived or they will deceive themselves or deceive others. But they have not come. They have come for programs or they have come to hang out or they want to have community or they like the sense of the worship or they like the preaching. It's very intellectually stimulating. Fill in all the blanks, but they're not here for Jesus. They appear as Christians, but they are not. We shouldn't be discouraged because it's up to God in the end to judge who is and who's not. Not us. I wouldn't care if there's 20,000 sitting in this church tomorrow. It's not my job or my responsibility to say, Christian, not Christian, maybe Christian. No, please. That's God's job. But I expect, as a minister of the gospel, for many to say, I don't accept your Jesus. I expect many more to say, I do accept your Jesus on my terms, so I'm not really in. But I also expect people to really meet Jesus. It is my expectation because I know my Father and I know the Son and the Spirit like you do. It is my expectation that God's divine conspiracy is always at work. And I expect that good news is going to fall on good soil. And just like Jesus Jesus taught, when it hits good soil, 30, 60, 100 fold, there is going to be radical change in people's lives. And when God shows up and does that in the life, I'm going to be absolutely elated. I, I got to be part of it, but I didn't do it. Never forget who Peter became. He confessed Jesus at this moment. And what did he do? He became the first leader of our church. Right? He died for Jesus. He led thousands of people at Pentecost. Who stood up and preached? The same guy who says, well, I can't leave you, Jesus. I don't know everything. What happens a few years later? He stands up at Pentecost and says, I proclaim to you that Jesus has died. I proclaim to the nations. And what happened? 3,000 people were saved at the moment. I expect when conversion happens, there to be radical, radical change and many many others to come to Jesus. 
This is what we need to grapple with up front because we're praying for 10,000, not because we want a big number, but because we believe God is sovereignly going to work that out. But as we're doing that, let me just tell you, if it's 10,000, we may have to tell 50 or 60,000 about Jesus for that to happen. Jesus comes and he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Embrace me or walk away. We as people in this room need to be very serious about the work of God, very filled with joy about what he's done in our lives, praying diligently that God would continue to do this, not be totally broken when the crowds go up or down, but go to the sovereignty of God and say, oh God, caller of people, oh Jesus, one who's died for them, oh spirit who leads them into life, will you not use me so we can find more Peters? This is what we're called to do. Now, as Nikki comes up to lead, I just want to pray a a prayer. It's a little different because it's significant. Because if you've been honest this morning about this more difficult part of Scripture, you may have realized this morning that you actually are the crowd and you're not Peter. And so my question to you as one of Jesus' representatives is this. What will you do with the bread of life? Here and online. If you want to truly embrace him, you feel the calling of God upon your life. If things are starting to get clearer and clearer at this moment, pray this. Jesus, I do believe you're from heaven. I believe you're the bread of life. I don't want you to forsake me or drive me away. I need to be, I need forgiveness for sin. I ask you to be savior in my life and Lord, king, ruler. Come and deeply, radically change me. Move me from the crowd to someone who really knows you. I just lay down my life now and ask that I'd have eternal life, that when I face death, my hope will be found in the work of Jesus. For others of us, Lord, I pray this right now, and I pray this carefully, but it's needed. I would ask in your mercy, God, for something significant to happen here this morning. I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd become so present in this room, in this place, and also anywhere else where people are listening or watching. And I pray because you're merciful and you're loving and you're compassionate and you do not want people to perish, that if there are people among us who are Judas and they don't know it, that you would tell them that that's them. Right now, that Holy Spirit, you would point out and say, you act like you know Jesus, but you do not love him and know him. And I pray, Jesus, that before it's too late, these people would move from that betrayer mentality, either intentionally or unintentionally, and come to living faith in Jesus. And if God has just told you that's you, by the way, there's no condemnation in that statement. It's given for your salvation. Just say, oh, Jesus, forgive me for playing a game around you and not actually knowing you. And lastly, my prayer is this. For myself, as a fellow journeyer with my friends, Jesus, help us never to compromise on your teaching. Help us to be grace-filled, humble, full of character, love, and compassionate. And yet, in the middle of that, preach the uniqueness, the power of Jesus in his cross. And we pray expectantly as a church that you would begin to prepare the ground for thousands of people to know you in this region because you've prompted us to pray this. And so, Lord, I pray this. Lord, we pray for the work of Jesus that more and more disciples would be found. Give us courage when people say no. 
Give us faith when people say no. And we just pray, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you've done so much in our life, and we pray you keep doing it among us. In the name of the Father, who calls us. In the name of the Son, who's died for us. In the name of the Spirit that fills us, gives us life, and has brought us into eternal life now, and will help in the resurrection of the dead. And all of God's people who know Jesus say, Amen. Let us stand, and I mean this not just pastorally, let us stand and worship Jesus. He's worthy. The bread of life, the resurrection in the life, the way, the truth in the life, God in flesh given for us. Let us sing to him.